these furnishings because the way this works is, is that there are things in the Old Testament such as these pieces of furniture that serve as metaphors for or symbols for spiritual truths that get unpacked in the New Testament. And we've been trying to work our way through that. Thus far, we've covered five of the pieces of furniture that appear in the tabernacle. We've already talked about the altar of burnt offering that sits out in that courtyard, as well as the uh, bronze basin of water that is out there between the altar and the uh, tinted portion of the tabernacle. We've also looked at two of the furnishings that reside in the holy place, that front room of the tinted portion of the tabernacle. We've looked at the altar of incense and the lampstand. And actually, tonight we come to the fifth element of the furnishings of the tabernacle and the third and final piece that resides there in the holy place. And tonight we'll be looking at the piece of furniture commonly referred to as the table of showbread. Now, that term showbread is kind of unique. It actually comes to us through William Tyndall's translation of the biblical text into German back in the 1500s. It was an attempt to translate a Hebrew phrase that is used in reference to the bread that's set atop this table. That Hebrew phrase literally means bread of the presence or bread of the face. It's a title that refers to the fact that this bread was set before the presence of or the face of Yahweh. And so showbread was a term used, uh, is a term taken from a term in German that's indicating this bread was shown in the presence of the Lord. That's how we get this terminology, and it's not the best terminology, but hopefully it gives you some idea behind it. And tonight we're going to be focused on this table and the bread that sits upon it. The relationship between the bread and the table is unique because in some passages they are spoken of as one and the same such as the case in Numbers chapter 4 and verse 7, where instructions are given for the transport of this table. And there, in Numbers chapter 4 and verse 7, it says, And over the table of the bread of the presence they shall spread a cloth of blue. Over the table of the bread of the presence, the bread and the table are combined into one object. But then you can go to Hebrews chapter 9, and you can see an example where the bread and the table are separated in terminology. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 2 says, For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. The lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. The bread and the table were separated there. Very interesting dynamics between the bread and the table. But tonight, as we talk about this, this piece of furniture, the last piece that sits in the front room of the tinted portion of the tabernacle, we're going to speak of them as one and the same the table, and the bread. And we know a little bit about these, this, this particular piece of furniture, and we need to focus on two passages as we get started. Two major passages in the uh, Mosaic Law that describe this particular piece of furniture and the bread that sits upon it. We need to start by going to the book of Exodus, and if you will go to the 25th chapter of Exodus, and there we'll read the instructions that were given to Moses regarding the construction of this table. Exodus chapter 25, beginning in verse 23. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. 
You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it a handbreadth wide and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. Now in this passage, in this uh, in these schematics that are given to Moses regarding the construction of this table, there are, are three things we really learn about the table. One, we learn about its construction. We know the table's construction. We know its dimensions in particular. It's two cubits long, a cubit wide, a cubit and a half tall. That amounts to about three feet long, one and a half feet wide, and two feet three inches tall. It's not a big table. Additionally, we know that it's made of a particular kind of wood, of acacia wood. And that wood is overlaid with pure gold. We learn that it has four gold rings at its four corners. And those rings are fastened to it so that the poles could be slid through the rings and this piece of furniture could be carried with those poles. We learn all these things about the construction of this particular object. And what's so fascinating to me about those details is that it's the very same details used in describing the construction of the Ark of the Covenant. And, for that matter, the altar of incense. All three of those objects that sit inside the tinted portion of the tabernacle are made out of the same wood, are overlaid with gold, are built so as to have rings on its four corners, and built so that poles will be slid through those rings for transportation. Why does that matter? Well, it may not matter that much, but it stands out to me because the Ark of the Covenant is in particular the most sacred of the objects that reside inside the tabernacle. The Ark of the Covenant embodied the very presence of God in the tabernacle. That's why it's the only piece of furniture that sits behind the veil. It represented the very presence of God, and from it emanated layers upon layers that separated people kept people at a distance from God based on certain criteria. And the very same construction method used on that particular piece of furniture that was so sacred is used in the construction of this table. What that should tell us about this table and what that should tell us also about the altar of incense is that they are holy objects. They are sacred objects. They are objects that represent the relationship between God and man in a unique way. The objects out in the courtyard of the tabernacle, those aren't made out of gold. They may be made out of acacia wood. They may have ringlets on them and poles that run through the rings, but they're, made, they're overlaid with bronze. There's something different about them. You get inside the tinted portion of the tabernacle, and now we're overlaying things with gold. It's symbolic symbolic of their sacredness, symbolic of their value, and symbolic of their representation of the relationship between God and man. The one major difference between the Ark of the Covenant and the other two pieces, the altar of incense and the table of of showbread, has nothing to do with their construction and everything to do with their location. That's the other thing we find out about the the, uh, table of showbread. We find out something about its location. 
But we don't really find that out in this chapter, in Exodus 25. We have to turn the page to Exodus chapter 26. And if you look at verse 35 of Exodus chapter 26, you learn that this table was to be placed outside the veil and on the north side of the tabernacle. What that conveys to us is that this piece of furniture is not back there with the Ark of the Covenant. It's in that front room, as I already mentioned, the, what we call the holy place of the tabernacle. And it's on the north wall. If you, if you have, are, are familiar with it, the tabernacle lies facing east. The door of the, of the tented portion of the tabernacle is on the eastern side of the structure. When you enter the tabernacle, to your left would be that lampstand, directly in front of you, just in front of the veil that separates the most holy place from the holy place, is the altar of incense. And to your right, on the northernmost wall, would be the table of showbread. For you and I, or for many of us at least, who tend to be right-handed, that's a prominent location. In fact, when you read about uh, when, when you read in the New Testament and James and John are asking for a seated position in the throne room of God, they're asking to sit on his right and left side. And we always associate the right side with, this, with the place of, that is special. We always associate the right side with the preeminent side just because of the dominance of right-handedness. You think about entering that temple, what's going to catch your eye? That table is right there on that northern wall, which for us has prominence in and of itself, not so much in the tabernacle. But it has a prominent location. That's all I'm trying to imply. And we also know one final thing about this table. We know its function. The table's primary purpose was to hold the bread of the presence. After giving Moses the schematics for this this table, the Lord said in verse 30 of Exodus 25, And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. This is why the table and the bread must go hand in hand, because the table serves no other function apart from the bread of the presence. Its very existence is to be the instrument for displaying this bread. So let's talk about this bread for a moment. To do so, we should turn over to the book of Leviticus. If you'll go to the 24th chapter of Leviticus, it's there where we read about this bread and directions are given regarding the bread of the presence. Leviticus chapter 24, verses 5 through 9. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles. Six in a pile on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever, and it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. There's a few things we learn here about this bread. First and foremost, we learn of its composition, that there's going to be 12 baked loaves placed on this table. These loaves were going to be made out of two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour. The Lord is so specific in what he wants here. How many loaves and how they're made. 
But we don't just learn of the bread's composition, we also learn of its organization. According to Leviticus chapter 24 and verse 6, these 12 loaves were to be arranged on the table. The ESV and the NIV refer to two piles or stacks. The New King James Version and the New American Standard refer to them as two rows. So whether it's rows or piles is up to debate. But there is a specialized arrangement here. Two rows or piles with six loaves in each row or pile. God is very particular about how he wants this bread placed on this table. Not only do we know of the bread's organization, but we also know of its expiration. We're told that each Sabbath the high priest would replace the loaves from the previous week with a fresh batch. Every Saturday, every seventh day of the week, the high priest would go in there with fresh baked loaves, remove the old and place the new. And then the old loaves were taken by the priest and they were allowed to eat them as long as they stayed within the confines of the tabernacle proper. This was one of the most frequent activities that would take place at the tabernacle. Aside from the, the altar burnt offering, the sacrifices daily being made and the incense that was burning and the lighting of the, the lampstand in the evenings, this was a frequent activity that the priests had to oversee. And one last thing, probably the most important thing about this bread, we know its representation. See, according to Leviticus chapter 24 and verse 8, it, this bread is intended to serve as a symbol of Israel's covenant with God forever. Twelve loaves of bread, a number that is easily associated with the tribes of Israel, Twelve loaves of bread were always to be on that table. And as one author said, that constant presence on the table signified that the people belonged to God and were continually in his presence. Another author said the table highlights the covenantal relationship between God and his people as Yahweh dwells with Israel in a special manner. In other words, this bread sitting on this table at all times signified that the covenant between God and his people was perpetually operating. It served as a reminder of God's covenant relationship with his people as long as there was bread on that table. The people were in God's presence. But the removal of that table as was the case when the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, was indicative of a break in that covenant. Now, what are we to take away from all this information about this table and this bread? Well, for me, what stands out is that much of the thing, many of the furniture in, in the tabernacle have some sort of connection to Jesus when we get to the New Testament. And it's quite obvious when you think about Jesus, you think about John chapter 6, where Jesus performs a miracle that, that of all the miracles must have been one of the most impressive. Because it's one of the few events that's recorded in all four Gospels. He feeds thousands of people in the wilderness with what amounts basically to a sack lunch. 
And the people were so impressed that they chased him around that great lake just to see him again. And that's when he launches into a discourse in which he called himself the bread of heaven, the bread of God, the bread of life, and the living bread. And Jesus used this bread terminology to communicate his identity to this crowd that had just been miraculously fed with bread and for the most part were continuing to follow him because they wanted more bread. And the fact that Jesus identifies himself as the bread of life means that he fulfills the very function that the bread of the presence once fulfilled. To use the words of Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. That means that he is the one who guarantees God's covenant. Just as the bread of the presence symbolically served as a guarantee of God's covenant with Israel forever, so Christ serves as a guarantee of God's covenant with Christians forever. I want you to think about it. When Jesus identified himself as the bread of life, he was identifying himself as that which guarantees covenantal relationships. Just look at some of the statements Jesus made in that bread of life discourse in John chapter 6. In verse 40, he says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. In John chapter 6 and verse 47, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. In verse 50 and 51, this is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And John chapter 6 and verse 58. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread of the father, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Do you see that theme? that Jesus is communicating in this bread of life discourse. He's continually claiming that through him, the bread of life, eternal life is offered. He's guaranteeing the fulfillment of God's covenant with God's people. One preacher I listened to made an interesting comparison. He said that Jesus is claiming to fulfill the function of the tree of life that was present in the Garden of Eden. If you think about that tree for a moment, it was a life-giving tree. The tree of life in the Garden of Eden was not off-limits. Assumedly, Adam and Eve were permitted to eat of that tree as long as they lived in the garden. The, the, the tree that was off limits was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Sometimes we just clump both of them together and say they were both off limits, but it seems that there was no warning against eating from the tree of life. At least there's not one specifically stated in Scripture. And so it seems that Adam and Eve could eat of that tree, and as long as they were eating of that tree, they had life. It's when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that death entered the picture. And now Jesus, as the bread of life, 
is in a sense indicating that he's taken the place of the tree. If you feed on him, you will not die. You'll live forever. Now, obviously, Jesus is not saying that you'll live forever physically because three times in John chapter 6, he made reference to the fact that he would raise up the one who feeds on him on the last day. He's not claiming that if you follow him, you'll never experience physical death. He's claiming that if he becomes your soul's food, then your soul will not experience the second death. Or to put it another way, if your soul feeds on him, then your soul will never be separated from God. And so this evening, as we contemplate the table of showbread, this table on which the bread of the presence was placed and served as a reminder of the covenant between the Lord and his people, it points us to the one who claimed to be the bread of life and became the source of a guarantee of a better covenant, a covenant that brings eternal life. And I want you to think tonight, to make this a little more applicable, a little more personal, I want us to consider what it's going to take for us to really consider Jesus to be the bread of our life. See, I think people become like whatever it is they hunger for. In fact, we, we have an expression that supports that basic principle, you are what you eat. And that, that, that basic premise is especially true when it comes to your, your soul. I think that's why in John chapter 6, in the midst of the Bread of Life discourse, Jesus said, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. That's John chapter 6, verse 56 and 57. Jesus is in effect saying that if you feed on him, then you'll abide in him. Or to say that another way, you, you can't maintain a healthy spiritual diet apart from Jesus. Because you are what you eat. So let me bring this sermon towards its end by considering some practical principles for maintaining a healthy spiritual diet. And I have to admit that these are not original to me. They've been adapted from another sermon that I had the opportunity to hear. But if Jesus is the bread of life, the question we have to ask ourselves is how do we feed on the bread of life? Three observations. You won't benefit from the bread of life until you recognize it as a necessity. In John chapter 6, Jesus said he is the bread of life. Jesus never said He's a bread of life. He said he's the bread of life. It's like him saying he is the way, the truth, and the life. There's only one. Jesus never presented himself as an option at the table. He is the one and only bread of life. 
But unfortunately, we're very good at filling up on junk food and losing our appetite. You know, when you were a kid and your mom would, you would ask for some dessert before dinner and she said, you'll spoil your appetite, you didn't care. Like, that's okay. I'm okay spoiling my appetite because that's what I want. And guess what? As an adult, many of us still act like that. We know that Jesus is the sustenance we need. We know that his word is what needs to be the focus of our spiritual diet, but we want the junk food. We don't care if we spoil our diet. We want what the world offers. And many of us are refusing to reject the junk food and spoiling our appetite in the process. You will never benefit from the bread of life until you view it as a necessity. You can't view Jesus as an option. He's the main course. And what we end up doing many times is that we don't think we need to change our diet until we face a health crisis. Listen, that happened to me last year. Last year, I was having gallbladder issues. My gastroenterologist ran a whole bunch of tests on me. My gallbladder wasn't, quit, wasn't, wasn't dead or not functioning, but it was on the way. She sent me to uh, a, a general surgeon to have him consider removing my gallbladder. After looking over all the test results, he said, Listen, your gallbladder, yeah, it's not functioning 100%, but it's being affected by this acid reflux medicine you're on. So here's the solution. This is what the doctor said. My solution is, Go lose weight, come off of your acid reflux medicine, and your gallbladder is going to kind of bounce back. He, in effect, told me in that conversation, I can operate on you, but I really don't want to because of your comorbidities. Let me translate that for you in a non-technical terminology. You're fat, so I don't want to work on you. He didn't say it like that, not at all. But saying that because of my weight, I was overweight, that was a a contributing factor to preventing a, a successful surgery. So he didn't want to operate. I walked out that day thinking a surgeon doesn't want to perform the most basic procedure in the world on me because I'm overweight. I got to do something. But it takes a health crisis to make us go, okay, we got to change our diet. Do you realize we do that spiritually? We wait till there's some spiritual crisis to say, hey, we need Jesus. We wait until things get really, really bad, and then we say we need the church. We wait until there is something traumatic in our lives, and then all of a sudden, we need to be spiritual. But Jesus is the bread of life. He's supposed to be the primary staple of our diet. We need to adopt the mentality that's presented in Psalm chapter 42, verse 1 and 2. And this psalm doesn't talk about hunger, but it does talk about thirst. It says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? What the psalmist is saying is that my, my soul needs the Lord desperately to survive. It cannot survive without him. And that's how we must view the bread of life. Because we cannot survive, we cannot sustain our spirit without it. 
without him. So you won't feed on the bread of life until you recognize it as a necessity rather than an option. And you won't feed on the bread of life until you respond to it personally. See, there's one thing you can't do. You can't have a proxy eater. Think about that for a moment. I can't call home at the end of a long day and tell Sarah, hey, I'm going to be working late tonight. I'm not going to have time to get dinner. Could you eat a sandwich for me so that I'll feel full? It doesn't work that way. You can't have someone eat for you and benefit from its nutrients. You have to be the one who who ingests the food yourself. That's why the Bereans are praised for being more noble than the Thessalonians in Acts chapter 17 and verse 11. Scripture asserts that the Bereans received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. In other words, they were so hungry that they feasted on God's word. They weren't satisfied with someone eating for them, so they consumed it for themselves. And as a result, they developed a praiseworthy diet. It wasn't enough for them to hear someone tell them the truth. They needed to ingest it for themselves. Now, it's an honor to stand up here before you Sunday after Sunday after Sunday communicating God's Word. And and I hope I do a, a praiseworthy job of that. But don't rely on me. Don't rely on those Bible class teachers that you sit in on every week, Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights or both. Don't depend on your youth minister. We can break open the bread of life for you. We can share God's word with you. But the true riches of his nutrients come when you do it for yourself. And think about this. At the final judgment, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 10, that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. It's an individual appearance there. I will not give an account for you, and you will not give an account for me. We must all give an account for ourselves individually, and we will be given an account for our diet, I believe. So when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, when you stand before the judgment seat of the bread of life, he'll know how much you've ingested. He'll know how much you've partook. He'll know how much you craved him. What does that look like right now? And one last thing. You won't feed on the bread of life until you receive it internally. Food has to be ingested in order for it to be of value to you. You can't go to a restaurant hungry, walk around and look at the food spread on the tables and say, oh, this food smells so good. Oh, that dish looks so good. And the way it's presented on these tables is perfect. And in turn, absorb its nutrients. What I'm saying 
is that you can acknowledge food, you can admire food, you can praise food, but until you eat food, it has no value for you. It's interesting because eating is a metaphor that is used even in our language to convey the idea, excuse me, to convey the idea of learning. We use the language of eating to describe the process of understanding and receiving statements expressed in words, as one author said. For example, we might say, I'll have to digest what you just said. Or that's hard to swallow. Or chew on that for a little bit. Or that's food for thought. And Scripture does this too. Scripture uses metaphorical language around the idea of eating to describe our relationship to the Word and to the Lord as well. In Psalm chapter 34 and verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Psalm chapter 119 verse 103, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Jeremiah chapter 15 and verse 16, Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The whole point is this. It's not enough to acknowledge the bread of life. It's not enough to admire the bread of life. It's not enough to praise the bread of life. In order for the bread to save, you have to feast on him and his word. That's why he's the bread of life. When we think about the table of the presence and the significance it played in representing the covenant between God and man in the Old Testament. And we consider the fact that Jesus identifies himself as the bread of life in the new. We need to be reminded of that covenant and what's expected of us by it. Jesus is the bread of life, and Jesus is also the one who, who used bread to symbolize what he did for us. When he instituted the Lord's Supper, he passed out bread and said, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. His bread, his the symbolism there of bread is a constant reminder to us of the covenant relationship we share with the Lord. And I'm reminded of one story that, that any time I think about, about the subject of bread, I'm brought back to Les Miserables. You may know in the story that, that main character Jean Valjean is sent to prison because he stole bread. To feed his family, he stole bread and he endures a long prison sentence as a result. And when he gets out of prison, he finds himself in a desperate situation once again. With nowhere to go on a rainy evening, he's offered shelter by the Monseigneur 
Bienvenue. While there, Jean Valjean steals some silver from the parsonage only to be caught by local authorities. He's dragged back to the Monsieur's residence to be confronted by his wrongdoing. But instead of confirming the crime, Bienvenue sees the event as an opportunity. He could condemn Jean Valjean and send him to prison again, but instead he chooses a different course of action. He gives the silver to Valjean and then says, Forget not, never forget that you have promised me to use this silver to become an honest man. Jean Valjean, my brother, you belong no longer to evil but to good. It is your soul that I am buying for you. Jean Valjean's story started because he stole bread. when he steals again, he's given grace. And for me, I just am pulled to that story simply because the bread of life is the place where we find grace. Because bread represents the body that went to the cross for you and I. And this evening, as we reflect on that bread, maybe you've come to the realization that your sins have been unaccounted for. And you need to let what happened at Calvary take care of your sins. You can do that this evening by confessing your faith that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God, by repenting of those sins, and by being immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. If you need to make that decision or if you have any other need this evening, we invite you to come while together we stand and sing. Have you a heart
and you will be directed to where that has been prepared. We'll be singing note 784, Why Did My Savior Come to Earth?
Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and all the many blessings. We thank you for Kyle's lesson, and may we take it and put it in our everyday walk of life. Help us to crave your bread and work every day to be closer to you. Lord, be with the sick of this congregation and help them to feel better, help them back to their natural walk of life. Lord, we ask you to forgive us of our sins and go with us this week and keep us safe and bring us back every appointed time. In Jesus' name, amen.